Well, amen, and good morning again. Welcome to King's Cross. Uh, my name is Clint, one of the elders of this church. A uh, privilege to have you join and worship uh, the Lord Jesus with us this morning. Uh, we are, uh, some of you who are used to coming, not visitors, might be a little concerned about how quickly we're moving uh, through the service. Uh, we've got baptisms today, and we're going to do those after the Lord's Supper. I uh, just want to instruct you now, let you know. Uh, so the way we're going to do that uh, today is after uh, the Lord's Supper, we will all go out on the lawn just right here. And uh, we put the baptismal right there where you could either go in the parking lot and look up and watch the baptism or be right here kind of around the grassy area uh, to, to, to watch the baptism. So we'll have the testimonies in here. We'll go out there and do that uh, in this season while we're in the lobby. That was our solution uh, to not destroy anything up here with water uh, or be able to even fit. So that's what we'll be doing. I would encourage parents with children uh, after the sermon, when we respond to the sermon in song, uh, if you want to go ahead and get your children, then you can. Uh, if you want your children to watch the baptism. If not, that's fine. Uh, but if you want to get uh, your children uh, during that song, I would encourage you to go do that uh, in the, during the song after uh, the sermon itself. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord one more time again in prayer and ask for his help. And we will jump in. Father, we come to you in the name of Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit to you, our great Father. Asking, bless now the preaching of your word. I'm merely a servant. I pray you would make me a faithful servant. I pray you would use this preached word faithfully to encourage and edify the believer, to bring forth courage and strength to those who are discouraged and weak, to humble those who are proud and arrogant, to bring back the straying sheep back into the safety of your ways, to bring those who don't know you to saving faith, to remind us all of the great work you've done for your people Israel in the Exodus and for Christ our Lord in the greater Exodus still. We pray for his glory in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we get to look at the greatest event in the history of Israel, at least up until the coming of the Lord Jesus, and that is the Exodus. So you've just heard it read to you. But this event, if you read through your Old Testament, if you know your Bible at all, if you read through the Old Testament, you're going to see everywhere there's reminders of this great event. All throughout the scripture, there's a remember what God did at the Exodus. This is the very event that defines Israel, that sets them apart as the unique and special chosen people of God. There's nothing more significant that you read in the, in the, in the text of the history of Israel than this event of Exodus. Indeed, it forms the pattern of salvation, how God moves to set enemies and captives free from bondage unto new life. And it is this event that ultimately points us to the greater event of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the Messiah, who sets people from the bondage of slavery of sin and death unto newness of life. That's what we celebrate in baptism is God's great work even in delivering and setting captives free. This event defines Israel and points to Jesus in the same way that the cross and empty tomb defines the people of God, now the church. And I don't want you just to take my word for it, that that's how you ought to read the scriptures. That is how you ought to read the scriptures, not just because I told you to do that. But the Lord Jesus himself in Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus with his disciples after his resurrection, he's having this conversation and we read in Luke 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, that is the first five books of the Bible, and in the prophets and in the Psalms, so law, the wisdom, the history, the literature, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. 
And he said to them, thus it is written, Jesus talking about the Old Testament scriptures, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day, I'm sorry, suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So Jesus says, let me tell you how to rightly read the Old Testament. It was written that the Christ must suffer, die, and rise on the third day in order that forgiveness of sins might be proclaimed to the nations. And so this great event in the Exodus was a pointer to the greater Exodus of Christ. And so what we're going to do as we look at this event and connect the dots to what Christ did on Calvary is just look at a few aspects of God's great work in rescuing people. And I would even say to you today, especially if you're a visitor, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you don't even know what you believe about spiritual things or about God, I want you to know that the Christian God, the God of the Bible, is a God who rescues, a God who sets free, a God who delivers, a God who redeems, a God who buys back and breaks uh, the chains of the captives and sets them free. And we'll see his, his, his ways about that. We'll see why he does that, his purposes, namely for his own glory and our good. We'll see the ways he goes about this and how he flexes his power in order to do that, both for rescuing his people but also for bringing judgment on his enemies. And we'll see in the midst of all of that, his presence is with us, that our God is not just a God who sets you free to leave you alone. He's a God who sets you free to be with you, sets you free from the bondage of sin and death that you might be with him, from being alone to being with him. So let's look First, at God's purpose in rescuing his people, his glory and our good. God's purpose in rescuing his people, his glory and our good. Look again at chapter 14. We'll be looking at verse 15 through 18. Then the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Now I want to first, just as we jump into the purpose of God and why he rescues people, why he sets us free, why he delivers Israel, and then ultimately uh, through Christ our Lord, why he delivers sinners through uh, through the, the gospel itself. But before we can even look at that, notice first that God responds to Moses and says, stop crying out and get moving out. So remember where we left them last time when we studied. They were between a rock and a hard place. Their back is against the Red Sea, and they're facing uh, Pharaoh's army. Pharaoh's army is approaching and threatening them, so they're terrified. They're angry at Moses. They're terrified. They're between a rock and a hard place. They're scared. And so they cried out in prayer. And yet notice what God says to Moses. <laughs> like, why are you crying out? Get moving out. This is interesting. This is interesting in this moment. It's almost like, hey, there's a kind of prayer that you can pray that's actually problematic. <laughs> there's a kind of prayer you can pray that's actually kind of this paralyzed refusal to obey what God has already told you to do. Sometimes... We hesitate to obey what God has clearly instructed. And then we go and say, we're just praying and seeking for instruction. There is a sort of prayer that can be uttered in paralyzed fear and unbelief. Spurgeon captures this moment well like this. Far be it for me to ever say a word in disparagement of the holy, happy, heavenly exercise of prayer. But there are times when prayer is not enough. 
when prayer itself is out of season. We may think that a hard saying, but my text is to the point. Moses prayed that God would deliver his people, but the Lord said to him, why are you crying out to me? As much as to say, this is not the time for prayer. It's the time for action. Tell the Israelites to break camp. When we have prayed over a matter to a certain degree, it then becomes sinful to tarry any longer. Our plain duty is to carry our desires into action and having asked God's guidance and having received divine power to go at once to our duty without any longer deliberation or delay. And again, if you'll just look back at the uh, top of the chapter, chapter 14, verse 1, we see why God responds this way. He's already clearly said, Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of, I can't can't remember how to say that uh, word. Let's just keep going down to three. For Pharaoh's sake of the people of Israel. I I, I got it last time when we was preaching through that, but I didn't get it this time, so we're not even going to try. For Pharaoh's sake of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So the Lord had already told them, this is what's going to happen. You're going to get between a rock and a hard place, and then I'm going to get glory over Pharaoh. And here they are crying out, God, what are you doing? He's like, what I told you I was going to do. And so, again, we need to, to understand that, that a prayerful waiting is not the same thing as a paralyzed passivity. Sometimes, again, sometimes it's like let go and let God. That's not biblical. Like trust God and get going is biblical. No, he's spoken to you. He's, he's given you his word, and by his spirit, he guides you into truth. You ought to pray about things. You ought to cry out and ask for his help, but then you ought to obey what you know he said in his word and not use that as a reason to just stay still. Waiting on God doesn't mean you stop walking with him. <laughs> Waiting on him doesn't mean you stop walking in steps of faith, believing and trusting that he's there, that he hears, that he cares. Waiting faith is a faith that walks forward in expectation for God to show up and answer his promises. One uh, comforting example of this, my wife and I, we were, uh, had moved to Raleigh. We were in seminary, so we worked seven years with campus outreach and college ministry. We had been here in Greensboro, then we were in Raleigh. And, uh, and we were there working, and, uh, and there was a season during that fall where I was raising some support I was an evangelism director for the church, and so I was fundraising for that. I was a full-time seminary student. We had two little children, um, and then the support wasn't coming in enough, and so there was full-time support, there was full-time seminary, and, uh, and then the evangelism director, so then I had to pick up a job at Chick-fil-A uh, in addition to all of that, and so this was not too long ago. It was about a decade ago uh, this happened. In the midst of all that, we were trying to figure out, like, Lord, I don't know what you're doing. Like, you're not providing support. Our finances are running out. I remember one Sunday morning gathering in the service and, and just weeping, like, Lord, I trust you. I, don't, I have no idea what you're doing. I don't, like, I've got to feed my wife and my children, and I know you've called us to do Like, what do we do in the midst of this? And I remember my wife and I having a conversation. And so we were there. We were praying. We were trying to figure out what was going on. And even then, we had a huge desire to plant a church in Greensboro. We had left here just for seminary and the transition from campus ministry to pastoral ministry. And while we were there, we had had all these conversations. We prayed about different cities. I had my poor wife thinking about living in Cleveland and Philadelphia and Boston. We were, we were looking all over, literally, where's the map and where might we plant a church? And, uh, and we had just got to Raleigh. So, uh, yeah, pray, uh, praise God for my, my bride. But we're there. And, uh, and so finally we'd had all these conversations. And we said, you know what? A mid-sized city that's diverse with a lot, a lot of college students. That's what our heart's burdened for. Wait a minute. That's Greensboro. That's where we left. That's what we loved. So let's just go back and plant a church in Greensboro. And so literally together we prayed one night, Lord, unless you interrupt, we're going to plant a church in Greensboro. About 24 hours later, I got a phone call from a pastor in Lincolnton going through a situation. 
And I hung up the phone, and Rachel was like, what was that? And I was like, that might have been an interruption. <laughs> and so kind of a few months go by, and nothing comes of that. There was a church that we loved, Freedom Church, that was going through some difficulties, and that phone call felt like maybe, maybe God's going to call us there, and so maybe we, we put the Greensboro thing on the, on the back burner. A few months go by, nothing happens. So again, Rachel goes to speak at a women's retreat, and and so I'm like, all right, baby, I'm going to pray again, and I'm going to put together some plans, and we're going to present it to the elders at, at Imago Day, and we're going to plant a church in Greensboro unless the Lord interrupts. She's like, all right, sounds good. So I pray again, Lord, unless you interrupt, we're going to plant a church in Greensboro. About 24 hours, I got another phone call from that exact same church, uh, and then that turned into a calling to go pastor that church. And so there was this holy interruption, glorious. God did more than we could have hoped or dreamed in those four years in Lincolnton. But I share this story just to let you know, like God is able to do whatever he wants to do. So you shouldn't pray these prayers like, I don't know what to do, and so do nothing. <laughs> you should pray prayers, God, this is, what I, this is what I think you've called me to do. This is what your word clearly says. It's not violating the scriptures. I'm going to walk in obedience to everything you've said and trust that if you want to interrupt, you can interrupt. And our God is good. And the whole point of what we're talking about right now, he's committed to his glory. He's more jealous for his glory in your life than you are. <laughs> Like, he's going to lead you. He's like discovering God's will is not like walking down a hallway and seeing all these different doors, and he's trying to see if you guessed the right one. Like, he's a good father. He's not playing hide and seek. <laughs> he's like, walk with me by grace through faith alone to the power of the Spirit in community. Obey what you know to obey. Pray and ask for help, but trust my word and move forward because he'll get his glory. And this is what we see. God, what he does in rescuing his people the ultimate purpose that he's doing all of that is for his great glory. And the good thing is he's linked that up with our greatest good. So he's made it where his getting glory is staked on you getting rescued by him. This is the beautiful thing of the gospel. This is the beautiful thing of God's word. And so he's letting them know, no, no, I am sovereign. I will get my glory. Pharaoh will find out there's no one like Yahweh. He will harden their hearts. Their hearts are bent on rebelling against God, warring against him, trying to steal glory. And God says, I am sovereign even over the hearts of my enemies. I will make sure that continues, and I will get the glory, just like I've promised, and they are totally responsible for their great rebellion against me. You can trust him. He's sovereign. He's in control. And again, think about in, back in uh, verse 14, verse, or chapter 14, verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. They feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Again, we might be fearful and fickle, but God is fearless and faithful. We can trust him. We can trust he's committed to his own glory. And in his providence, he's linked that up with rescuing us and using us to bring him glory. And that in and of itself brings us great joy. You might feel stuck between a rock and a hard place. Trust God, cry out for help, and keep walking with him. Take a step in community according to his word and walk by the spirit following where he's called you to follow. And even in the church, know that Jesus will build a church. He says this to Peter, like, I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades can't stop it. Like, I'm going to accomplish my purposes because my glory is at stake and my glory is linked up to your good. Trust him and move forward even if you feel stuck. Ultimately, if you're in Christ, you're never stuck. You're right where our sovereign God wants you to be. And he has a plan to move you forward. Non-Christian friend, God made you for his glory. He made you. His great purpose for your life is for you to bring glory and honor to him. And your greatest problem is you've rebelled against that and refused to live for his glory. But he's gracious. And so he sent his son to perfectly live a life that brings glory and honor to the father. 
And he's willing to freely credit that life to your account. So that you could say, no, no, because of Christ, the perfect life that glorifies God in everything has been given to me freely. And then he climbed up on Calvary's cross and he took the wrath of God for every time you refuse to live for the glory of God. So he lived the life that brought glory to God. He took on, though he had never had any sin of his own, took on your sinful rebellion against God's glory and is willing to exchange his righteous record for your sinful one. And then on the third day, he got up out of death so that he might present you holy and blameless and above reproach, a perfect God glorifier, not in your life, but in the perfect life of Christ. God's offer of salvation, however, must be responded to. You must repent and believe. So you ought to cry out to him, God, I'm sinful. I have rebelled against you. You are glorious. I have no hope for salvation except for the Lord Jesus. Will you forgive me for my sins? You ought to trust in Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. And then you ought to walk with him, with us. <laughs> so it's not just cry out and I don't know what to do. So no, 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 cry out and then come walk with God with us. God brings you into a faith family because he's, he's committed to making sure he gets glory from your life and in that way gives you eternal good. He's the only hope, non-Christian friend. Look to him. God's purpose in rescuing his people is his glory and our good. Secondly, I want you to notice God's presence is with those whom he rescues. So he's going to get his glory. He's going to give you his good. And he promises, I'm with you. I saved you so that you might be with me, that your sin issue might be dealt with, and we might have intimate fellowship. Look at verses 19 and 20 again. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. As sure as God will get his glory by rescuing us, so too does he promise his presence with us, even in the most intensive battles. So in this moment, notice the distinction. God is going to make clear there's a difference between my people and not my people. There's a difference between my people and my enemies. And so this pillar of cloud and fire has been leading Israel. They've been following God's presence. It's, it's, it's a theophany. It's a revelation of God's very presence with his people saying, I am with you. And if you remember when we studied through the plagues, there was clear distinction between Israel and Egypt, Israel and Egypt. And so there was certain plagues that happened, and Israel was uniquely protected. Climactically in the death of the firstborn because of the blood of the lamb. And so all throughout this study, we've watched, and we've watched God distinguish between his people and his enemies. And in this moment, we're seeing the presence has been leading them forward. And then notice the pillar of cloud, the angel, the presence of God goes behind them to defend them. So suddenly God's presence is giving light to Israel and keeping Egypt in darkness. God's very presence is protecting them. I don't know if you paid attention even as we sing in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He goes before me. Defender behind me. His presence is with us. He's near. He's close to us, and he's able to protect us. But again, I want you to notice this dis distinction, and especially for those who've, who've experienced the greater exodus, that is, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and have become Christians, have been set free from sin unto relationship with Christ. Have you ever noticed how Matthew opens and closes his gospel? He wants you convinced of God's presence, I promise so sometimes I think we read the Bible and we, just, we don't read closely and so we miss some of these things. But Matthew opens his gospel account talking about the presence of God with us in Christ and he closes it 
talking about the presence of God in Christ. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, when the angel appears to Joseph, who's bugged out because Mary's pregnant, he's trying to figure out what to do, and he's thinking, man, do I divorce her? What's going on? What am I supposed to do? And listen to what happens. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. But Joseph, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God's always been committed to being with his people. Everyone he rescues, he's rescuing you that he might be with you forever and that you might be with him forever. So Matthew opens up, and we find out Jesus' name is Yahweh saves. <laughs> he is God with us, Emmanuel. This is who he is. And then how does Matthew close the, the gospel account? Matthew 28, verse 18, the Great Commission. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, what? I am with you always to the very end of the age. God's presence is with his people. If he rescues you, he is with you, period. This is what he does. And even more than just Emmanuel, Christ, our God, with us, he resurrected and he ascended. Why did he ascend? Because he says, I got something even better. I got more presence for you than even that. John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither, see, neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. If he rescues you, he gives you his presence. This is what he's done from Israel up to his incarnation and even his ascension. He sends forth the Spirit to be with us. This is the ultimate distinction. God is our light and life, and he is their darkness and death. This is what we see with Israel and Egypt. This is true even of those who follow Christ and those who reject him. But also notice we can, we can trust him to his presence to protect us from our enemies. Again, this, this, this presence of God protects them from Egypt. So this great, fearful army comes after them, and the presence of God protects them. And so you can trust that this is a picture of God saying, I will take care of you. And even if Satan wants to attack you, he's got to ask God's permission first. We learn this in Job chapter 1. This is showing God's presence will protect his people. One commentator says, God's special presence in the cloud prefigures his presence in Christ, who is our protection and refuge against all the attacks of Satan. What does James, our brother, say in James 4, 7? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So when you're stuck between a rock and a hard place, I have good news for you. You don't have to sin. <laughs> you don't have to fear Satan when you're stuck. God is with you. You are never alone if you're in Christ. You could not possibly be alone ever if you're in Christ. So you might feel like I'm the only one going through this. Man, nobody knows what I'm going through. It's a lie from the pit of hell. You're never alone if you're in Christ. The Spirit of God is with you. You are not alone. You will never be alone. He will protect you. Paul teaches even clearly that this presence will rescue us from idolatry and unbelief. Understanding God's presence. And he lets us know that even what's written about Israel and Moses and what happens here 
and then their subsequent rebellion against God. He's saying all of this is written for our instruction that we remember in the moment of temptation to idolatry and rebellion and unbelief that God is with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation is overtaking you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God's presence protects you from the attacks of the evil one and even from your own sin. His presence is with those he rescues forever. In Christ, you're never alone. Thirdly, God's power rescues his people and destroys his enemies. So we're, we're, we're looking and understanding the purpose of it all is his glory and our good. The promises his presence is with us, but also understand that his power will be on display. Either to rescue or judge. Those are the options. That's what we see. Look at verses 21 to 29. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, all of the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. Two observations here about God's power. Number one, his power makes a way. His power makes a way for his people. If someone needs rescue and God means to rescue them, his power will make a way for them to be rescued. Moses raises his rod and the seas are parted. Consistently, this rod throughout the plagues has been a sign of the presence of God and the power of God working through Moses as a servant of God. And so he raises his hand just like God told him to. He obeys and literally the seas split like walls on the right and on the left. Now, scholars come up with all kinds of uh, ways to try to explain away this supernatural miracle. None of them are true, and so I'm not going to spend much time talking about any of them. Now, if you, if you have scholarly questions about some of the kind of scholarly arguments, I'm happy to talk to you. Shoot me an email, reach out, happy to have a conversation. But this is a supernatural miracle of God. And if you erase the supernatural like Thomas Jefferson did, so I'm going to tear all the pages in my Bible that are supernatural because I don't believe in that. If you, if you do that, you're just not a Christian. Christians believe in miracles. Like, we believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. We believe he was born of a virgin. Like, this is what we believe about him. So he parts the seas as a supernatural miracle. It's not like the water was just shallow enough. Literally, some people say it's shallow enough. They went through this one part. It's the Reed Sea, and it was shallow enough. It's not. It's the northern end of the Red Sea. He parts the waters. They walk through. Because the waters clearly are deep enough to drown the Egyptian army. So how are they going to walk through if it's shallow, but then it drowned the army? Come on, it's nonsense. So again, if you want to have conversations, happy to, uh, but we're not going to spend more time talking about that. <clears throat> Instead, we're going to think about, no, this is the creator. He's the creator of the universe. He's the maker. Therefore, he can be a remaker. <laughs> He's the one who makes a way through this. Like, he can do this because of who he is, because of his power. In fact, that's the very point of all of it. 
He's demonstrating, I have a supreme power none other like me has. So at some level, and to be a little cheesy, I'm a dad, so I get to make dad jokes and be a little cheesy from time to time. When you're the maker of all, you can be the way maker for your people and deliver the haymaker on your enemies. <laughs> like you've got that kind of power because you created all things. You sustain all things. You hold them together by the word of your power, Colossians 1 tells us. So he can make a way through creation because of who he is, and he can deliver his people because of his great power. Now, Israel goes down symbolically into death and comes out on the other side to walk in newness of life, prefiguring the resurrection life through Christ that we have. In fact, Paul uses this language and imagery to talk about baptism. So in baptism, we're not saying today when, we, when these brothers get baptized that they're becoming Christians today. No, we're demonstrating what God has done in delivering and setting them free and saving them. So even this is what we see, and Moses connects these dots for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. <laughs> so Paul's like, no, no, if you understand Exodus, you're going to see Christ. They were baptized through the sea into Moses. You're baptized into Christ. This, all of this, what's going on in Israel and this deliverance was all pointing to this greater deliverance in Christ. Hall of Faith, Hebrews eleven twenty nine. 29. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. The maker of it all can make a way through for those he rescues because he has the power. You're never actually stuck if he's with you. He's guiding you. He can always save you. He will always do what's best for you because he has that kind of power. But also notice this power to rescue can be a power to execute justice by drowning his enemies. So his power will rescue or his power will judge and condemn. He's got the power and authority to do both. So the Egyptians follow into uh, the Red Sea on dry ground. So they're like, all right, cool. They're running. Now we can go in after them. And so they, they run in, they follow. In the morning, the Egyptians saw the pillar of fire and cloud and then realized they're surrounded by a wall of sea on the right and left, and the wheels get muddy. <laughs> I love this detail. Now, why, why is this detail given to us? The chariots, the wheels get muddy, it gets stuck. Why is this important? Well, because this is the greatest warfare technology that exists in this day, these chariots. This is the most intimidating and fearful army on the planet. And they understand and believe themselves to be the most powerful and the most dangerous in large part because of these chariots. And so God says, I'm going to take your strength and show you how weak it is. I'm going to take your great weaponry and demonstrate just how supreme my power is over you. So I'll clog up the little wheels on these little things you think are so impressive. They'll be the end of you when you think they're going to be the end of Israel. This is God demonstrating his supreme power even over and against the Egyptian army. And they realize it. Do you notice in verse 25, they realize, uh-oh, the Lord is fighting for Israel. Like we picked a fight with somebody we shouldn't. And it's like, no, you shouldn't have. Did you not remember the plagues? <laughs> like, good night. But again, maybe they're thinking the Lord's abandoned them. They're out in the wilderness. They're stuck. And so, again, they're thinking maybe, maybe this God is not a God who keeps his presence with his people. But now they're finding out he is a God who stays with them. And so God commands Moses in verse 26, raise up your staff. So you raised up the staff to part the waters. 
You were delivered and rescued. He's got the power to rescue. Now raise that staff up and bring the waters back together. He's got the power to execute judgment. The same power of God demonstrating rescuing grace and just uh, judgment on those who've rebelled and been wicked. Also notice this happened in the morning light. So one of the, the primary and strongest false god in Egypt, Amon Ra, which we've talked about a number of times, they believed that every night, so he's a sun god, they believed that every night when the sun went down, Amon Ra died. And then when the sun came back up the next morning, he resurrected. So they believed he had resurrected power, resurrection power. So God waits until the morning when the sun is coming up to put Amon Ra down. So they think just at this moment when they're big and, and most uh, powerful God is rising from the dead and going to deliver victory from them, God ends them. Because, again, he's demonstrating his power is supreme over all the false gods and goddesses in Egypt. He's demonstrating he has no competition. He has no rivals. There's none like him. There's a reason y'all turn up when we sing that song. <laughs> because it's true. And when we get into scriptures, we realize no, there is a, it's a fearful thing to, to fall into the hands of the living God. He has the kind of power that can rescue, but the kind of power that justly judges and can destroy the worst of his enemies. And notice when they realize he's fighting for Israel. Our God is not only with us, he fights for us. God is not merely a God who says, I want to be with you. He's a God who says, I will fight for you. Climactically in the cross, of course. But even in the midst of our battles, we know the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. With groanings too deep for words. We know that Christ is at the Father's right hand, interceding and pleading for us, fighting for us presently. God is not only with you, he's fighting for you right now. Yeah, but Clint, I'm struggling with unbelief. That's fine. I'm not trusting in your belief. I'm trusting in the one who's fighting for you. He will keep you. So our God is with us and he fights for us. And we can know this is the kind of God we have and he's got power over our enemies, whatever those enemies might be. And also notice... Verse 29, there's just this restatement. So they were drowned. The Egyptian armies drowned, but Israel walked through and dragged around this restatement again. Our God rescues to the uttermost. He rescues to the uttermost. He saves to the uttermost. He doesn't do partial rescues. God doesn't do partial rescues. This is good news. He doesn't make salvation a, a possible. He accomplishes it. <laughs> like he doesn't make it where like, well, I hope if you'll do this, you get in. No, 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 I'm going to deliver you through the Red Sea. I'm going to get you all the way across, and then I'm going to crush your enemies. He makes it possible. He rescues to the uttermost. He saves those who belong to him. He's got that kind of power. And again, let's just think about what we learn as Christians from what we see with Israel. They walk through on dry land. We walk out of spiritual tombs. He rescues us from sin and death unto new life with Christ. And you need to understand that, that getting saved is primarily not, like, it's not merely, I'm sorry, it's not merely just not going to hell. No, you're rescued to new life with Christ. <laughs> like, you crossed over to the other side, you have freedom now. So you can live this new life with God and be with him forever. He didn't save you just to leave you alone now. Getting saved is not the end, it's the beginning. <laughs> he crosses you over for this new life in Christ. That's what we portray in baptism. We went down into the watery grave, and we came up out. The other side, to newness of life. Paul uses language, Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound, still living the old way? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. God set you free to live free. Brother and sister, don't continue in bondage. You've been set free in Christ. Live this new life. God's power rescues his people and destroys his enemies. And now Israel has to respond to this rescue. And so do you even respond to the rescue in the gospel. Lastly, responding to the rescue. So again, we've watched his purpose, his glory, and our good. We've seen his presence with us. And now he's demonstrated his power to judge and to rescue. You've got to respond. You must respond this morning. In some way, shape, or form, you must, you're held responsible before God to respond to what you've heard from his word. How ought you to respond? Look again at verse 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. So they've been saved. What are they going to do? And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. So how ought we to respond to the rescue of this great exodus in Christ? And even how did Israel respond to their rescue in the exodus itself? Number one, we ought to fear the Lord's great power. You ought to fear God's great power. Do you all remember chapter one when we opened this study? An earlier Pharaoh was really concerned about what? He was concerned about Israel getting too big and fighting against him. Something much worse happened. Yahweh fought against him. So he was worried about these people. Now he's dead on the seashore because they were messing with these people's God. And so notice, again, the, the, the Lord has great power. He has no fear of any enemies. These Egyptians are now dead on the seashore. And Israel was crying out because they forgot who was on their side. They forgot who was fighting for them. They forgot the plagues. So not only did Egypt forget the plagues, Israel forgot the plagues. But now they realize and they look and they see our great enemies that we were terrified of are dead at our feet. We have nothing to fear if Yahweh's on our side. What can man do to us? <laughs> like, think about Romans 8. Think about the Apostle Paul and the, the echoes of Romans 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And so we ought to fear the Lord because he's powerful. So there should be a right fear of God's power. And, and these dead Egyptians are prefiguring that day when all of God's enemies will be judged. This is a picture, Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That's the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All of God's enemies, including, praise God, death and Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire. But all those who reject him, there is a judgment coming. And these Egyptian bodies are pointing us to that coming judgment. There ought to be a fear of the Lord in us. But also, we should... We should fear the Lord's great power, but we should uh, believe in the Lord's saving power. So again, it's what we just talked about, and this is how they respond. So they look, they see, they fear his power, but then they believe the Lord. Oh, that's right, you're Yahweh. You can save sinners like us. Even when we're tripping and we forget who you are and what's going on, like you're able, you are able, you are able. They believed in the Lord. Israel believed. We should fear the Lord as just judge, but we should trust him as loving Savior. (laughs) We should understand his power, but then look at his grace and marvel and say, who is man that God would be mindful of us? That he would save a sinner, a wretch like me. And look at him and trust that he's able. He's able to rescue. You might say, but you don't know what I've done. I don't care what you've done. He's able. There's infinitely more grace and mercy in him than sin in you. He's able. He can save you up to believe in the Lord. Think on the cross. 
Like what Jesus did on the cross, he paid the penalty. So he said, I will drown in the waters of God's wrath so that you can pass through them in baptism. I will drown. I will be like the Egyptian army so that you can be set free like Israel. I will take the wrath of God so that you can pass through and be passed over. The wrath of God pass over you that might be set free to newness of life. Believe in the Lord. Trust him. The great I am. The creator, the redeemer, the maker, the remaker. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Trust in the Lord. And lastly, trust in his servant. Notice Israel feared the Lord, believed in the Lord, and in his servant, Moses. One commentator said, since the Lord had chosen Moses as the one through whom he will reveal his word, it is necessary for Israel to learn to follow Moses as a consequence of learning to fear the Lord. Now, Moses is unique. I do want to do something here pastorally for the members of King's Cross especially. Moses is unique. He's a unique leader, unique servant of the Lord, and ultimately he's, he's pointing forward to the greater servant, the greater deliverer to come, Christ himself. But there is a principle here that in Scripture is taught all over Scripture that God gives spiritual leaders to serve and care for you, to help you, to grow. And so at, at King's Cross, we take very seriously uh, the Apostle Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, that is Christ, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So the elders take seriously we ought to shepherd by way of example and teaching the word and caring for you. But then also you must take seriously Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that'd be of no advantage to you. So God gives servant leaders in his church, not domineering power hunger leaders. Those dudes are whack. We're not talking about them. We're talking about servants. Humble servants that are like, no, I just want to point you to Jesus, the chief shepherd, the senior pastor. I want to be an under-shepherd to him. I'm just serving and pointing you to him. And so members of King's Cross, we just, you got an email this Wednesday asking for soul care meetings. Colin sent it out. Go back on that, click on that. The elders want to meet with you. We just want to care for you, hear how you're doing spiritually, know how to pray for you, know how to encourage you. So we'd encourage you, sign up for those soul care meetings. Those aren't just, we're not doing them to check off a box. We're doing them because we love you. We want to care for you, we want to help you, we want to pray for you, we want to fight with you as we serve. But ultimately, trust in the greater servant to come. The Lord's servant, the greater servant, the greater deliverer, Jesus, who comes and has power to both judge and to save. Those whom he saves are brought through the baptismal waters to walk a new life. Those whom he rejects are drowned in them. And so, friends, again, trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. God will get glory from your life, either as your just judge or as your merciful Savior. Faith in Christ is the difference in your rescue or your rejection. Trust in Christ, we implore you. Trust in Christ. I want to conclude by reading Psalm 136, and then we will respond in song. But flipping your Bibles to Psalm 136, and I want to do a public reading of Scripture. And I want you thinking about all that we've just looked at. And we're going to try this. You're going to respond. So I'm going to read. A line, and then you're going to read a line. All right? It's the same line over and over and over. 
Jonathan's got a great song about it called Eternal. Craig's on that thing. It's incredible. Listen to it. Uh, inspired by this. But I'm going to read a line. You're going to read a line. And I want you to hear this echo and understand Israel and how important this would be to them reading it in light of what just, we've just studied, but also thinking about your deliverance even from the tomb. <clears throat> so I will read the first couple stanzas. I'll read both. You join with me in the stanza that will be obvious. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. For his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders. For his steadfast love to him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and stars to rule over the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. And brought Israel out from among them. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two. And made Israel pass through in the midst of it. But overthrow, overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings. And killed mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as a heritage. A heritage to his servant Israel. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. And rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven. Let's pray together. Father God.